Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have a five-time New York Times bestselling author and incredible contributor to the cultivation of well-being in our society, Dr. Daniel Siegel, MD. He's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and is currently a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA's School of Medicine. He's the founding co-director of UCLA's Mindfulness Awareness Research Center and the founding co-investigator at UCLA Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, and also also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational center devoted to promoting insight, compassion, and empathy in individuals, families, institutions, and communities. And we're going to talk about his latest bestseller, a wonderful book called Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Welcome to the show. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So I know one thing from reading your book that you believe, and maybe we can just start here, is that it is never too late in life to develop, grow, and transform. And I know that that's what your work is about. Tell us, how did you even get into this arena? Wow. (laughs) Well, the first thing is to say it's absolutely true that you can always grow throughout life no matter what your age is. I've worked with people in their 90s who have significant transformation and they are shocked because we have a myth that we carry around with us that, oh my God, you only grow and change in childhood or adolescence. But that's just not true. And I guess I got into this as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, also working with adults, seeing the kids change, but then also realizing the adults were changing basically just about as much. And so I started diving into what my background in medicine was, was in various aspects of physiology, including neuroscience. So really looking into what did we know about the brain and how might the brain actually be open to what's called neuroplasticity and how it could continue to grow based on experience. So that's kind of how I got into it, inspired by my first teacher in neuroscience, who actually won the Nobel Prize showing how experience changes the structure of the brain in young organisms. And so it was just extending that to saying, could that also be true throughout the lifespan? Now, this seems like there might be an obvious answer to this, but, you know, in your claim of, and I absolutely agree, why is it that we, when we cultivate our capacity for being aware, the quality of our life and the strength of our mind are enhanced? Because I want to put that selling point out there for everyone to start to maybe go down this journey of looking into this awareness practice. Well, you're actually tapping on to probably the most important discovery in science, I think, in the contemplative world in the last dozen years or so. And it's been taught in contemplative traditions for hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years, that something you do with your awareness, what we can simply call the experience of knowing, of being conscious, actually changes things in a deep way. And so the first thing to start with is a deep breath and say, ah, yes, this is amazing because it empowers us to say, it's not just what happens in our lives, it's the quality of how we're aware of what happens that makes the big difference. And 
we can learn how to transform that quality of awareness with some very accessible, practical, simple practices. And when we learn that, you go, oh my God, and I just got an email from someone just just yesterday actually, which was going on and on about how the wheel of awareness, which I talk about in that book, Aware, um, has changed her life. And it's just so rewarding because this empowers people without any kind of gadgets, without anything you have to buy. Uh, it's just basically something that makes a huge difference, even though it doesn't cost a penny. It's something that you can empower yourself with to transform your life through this opening of awareness. And we can talk about the specifics of it in a moment, but I just want to honor what you're saying, that it's really quite simple, quite elegant, and very, very empowering for each of us to know this. I love the examples that you give in your book, and one of them was, um, they're, they're all compelling, but um, I want to just touch on Teresa, because she was in an abusive kind of traumatic, she was a traumatized individual. And um, she shifted from being reactive to becoming receptive. And I just love that phrase. Um, I'm wondering if you might be able to expound on her experience and how that could work for someone who, let's say, had a very traumatic upbringing, is, uh, you know, wired to be reactive and fearful, um, and how she was able to use the wheel of awareness to become receptive instead. Exactly. Well, you know, I use lots of examples. And Teresa, her, her journey is not only powerful, but it's also sadly shared by many people, you know, that we have um, this habit as human beings to unfortunately mistreat our youth. Um, and then that carries forward in our lives in a way that a lot of us try to ignore. Um, but on a simple level regarding awareness, what it does is it makes it, if you can picture the mind like a wheel, this wheel of awareness, where the hub is representing the experience of being aware or knowing, the rim is anything that can be known, like a thought or an emotion or a bodily sensation or a memory. So let's take Teresa's uh, experience. Her composition of her wheel was basically to have a very small hub that made her prone to being lost on the rim. So let's be very specific about it. If she had an emotion like disappointment in her relationships now as an adult, it would pull her over to the rim, flood her. She'd be lost in her disappointment. The fear that would come up, the sadness, the anger would overwhelm her. And she was unable to really be present in her connecting with her partner so that at that moment, She's just pure anger, pure fear, and she can't be receptive, which comes from the hub. She's just on the rim in reactivity, pushing her partner away. Now, one simple analogy is if the mind is like a wheel like this and the hub is our spaciousness of awareness, many of us, especially if we've had trauma, but not only because of that, have a very small hub. And think of it like a um, the equivalent of the analogy of a, a, an espresso cup size container. So if we fill that container with awareness that's that small and life dishes out a challenge like interacting with your partner or having something happen in life that's upsetting, that's like a tablespoon of salt. And then if because of our development, the container awareness is this espresso 
size cup. You dump that tablespoon of salt in there and it's too salty to drink. So you become reactive to this thing you're drinking. It's too salty, right? Well, what awareness practices do is by expanding the hub of this wheel, you're expanding the container of consciousness so that now, let's say, instead of the espresso cup size, now it's 100 gallons in size. Now life dishes out a a disappointment, a frustration, a confusion, a miscommunication. Life is full of challenges like that, tablespoons of salt. If instead of this small container, we have this huge container of water, now that spaciousness of awareness takes in the salt and you mix it up, it's fresh water. It's fresh to the taste. You remain receptive and you can drink the water rather than reactive because it's too salty. And essentially that's what awareness practices do. They take this thing that you're speaking about, awareness, and they allow it to be expansive in ways we can talk about in a moment that are so empowering to allow us not to get lost on the rim, to stay fully in this spaciousness of the hub, and then to be receptive to what's happening with life, which comes down to a simple word. It's about staying present for ourselves and for others. That's what presence comes from, this hub of the wheel of awareness. Can you talk about this um, this comment you made about, well, and I guess it was in Teresa's story, but the idea of that, you know, and I think that most people would think this way, that that being open and available to connect, it, it's not passive. But for a traumatized person, it can seem like giving up and being more at risk of being hurt and let down. Can you explain the inner workings in someone's mind of why that would be the case? I kind of understand that a bit. It seems a little bit scary sometimes to be open or, or vulnerable, and maybe that's what you mean. But I'm wondering if you could clarify that and kind of give us give us a full scope of that picture. Yeah, you know, it's so amazing. I, 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 I just had a couple session recently where this was exactly the topic. One of the partners in the couple, you know, uh, was uh, retrieving all sorts of memories of very difficult things as a child. And, and so the issue came up just like you're talking about it. And it's, it was true with Teresa, too. And, you know, people don't realize that and this is where the, the deep dive you go into the book aware helps actually explore it in a way that for me as a therapist and just for me as a person on the planet became so interesting because um, there's a reason why awareness, this hub, um, has a quality of uncertainty that if you've been traumatized, like this person in the therapy session uh, we just had or um, let's say in Teresa's case, then uncertainty is pure awareness is actually associated with terror because you want to have some kind of certainty. You want to have some kind of feeling like you can control things or predict things. And so people then essentially stay on the rim of the wheel to stay with the metaphor view. Um, and by understandably as a survival mechanism, trying to predict and be certain, you actually restrict yourself into reactive states because if you could drop into the hub, and there's a whole science behind what I'm about to say, the equivalent of the uncertainty of pure awareness is actually freedom and possibility. So this is the sad reality that a lot of us will 
have a traumatic set of experiences, then try to survive in the face of them. In that survival effort, we cling to certainty and predictability. So we're away from the very source of freedom, which is the hub, and instead clinging to the rim. And so now we're constantly creating our own prison. And that's what Teresa did. And so by supporting the journey to drop into pure awareness, where presence happens and you can join with another person, what for many people is a prison keeping them from connecting to others because it feels terrifying because I'm, quote, losing myself. Ironically, when you let go and learn to become a kind of a selfing experience in relationship to another person, you realize who we are is our connections with others. And when you move into that freedom and possibility, it becomes incredibly invigorating. It's full of love and a joining experience where instead of just being A, communicating with B and they're separate, now you're AB. And in that joining, you become bigger than just a separate self. And so initially that may be scary, but as people do the journey, it becomes incredibly um, uh, filled with joy and gratitude and a sense of uh, a fuller kind of life. Yeah, I can really see how someone in that kind of past or situation would be so afraid of the unknown, even bracing unknown awareness, right? Anything that's unknown, like you said, they that that for them growing up was not a good thing. So I can see how that would be a an interesting um, right turn to make for those people. Um, there's there's so much good stuff in here. I'm probably going to dance around a little bit, but um, let's talk about in what we mentioned in the beginning, you know, how you can change, you know, this important general principle you mentioned of what is practiced repeatedly strengthens brain firing clusters or patterns. And so with repetition, neural structure is literally altered. And this is how repeated states become enduring traits. So while those, while we can have some, you know, negative repetitions, we can also get ourselves out of that. Tell us really in layman's terms as much as possible to our how, how can we Take a trait, take something, whatever, maybe it's anger, maybe it's reactivity, maybe it's an addiction, and, and, and use this n- neurobiology, you know, and to, or interpersonal neurobiology, as you call it, to, to, to really move forward and get out of that and start to a new pattern. Yeah, beautifully said. You know, the phrase I like to use is where attention goes and that's how you focus attention, which is basically um, seeing what you are choosing to do with your mind, where attention goes, neural firing flows. So here, what you've done with your mind, the focusing of attention is getting literally neural firing, which is a form of energy flow of electrical energy and chemical energy to flow inside your skull as well as other parts of your body. So neural firing, and here's the secret sauce, where neural firing flows, then neural connections grow. So let's say the whole thing in one flow, where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. So you don't need a scalpel to be changing the structure of the brain. You need your mind to focus attention, to get neurons to fire, to get them to then rewire. Now, the beauty of that is if you learn how to do that in what I call an integrative way, 
which is kind of what the wheel is an example of, but there are many ways of doing it. Um, you're taking different aspects of your mental experience and linking them. That's what integration is, the linkage of differentiated parts. And amazingly, when you do an integrative practice with the mind, you actually strengthen the integrative connections in the brain. And every study we can find suggests that integration in the brain is the basis of well-being. So it's that simple that the wheel of awareness came from scientific reasoning saying, hey, could we integrate consciousness by differentiating aspects of it, the knowing, for example, in the hub from the knowns on the rim, and then link them together with a movement of a spoke of attention. And that integration of consciousness is associated in a set of other kinds of studies with um, practices that have been shown to integrate the brain structure. Now, why is that important? Integrative brain structure, yes, it's associated with well-being, uh, but very specifically, Every way that we regulate something like attention, emotion, mood, thought, behavior, self-understanding, relationships, morality, all of that, amazingly, comes down to integration in the brain. So you achieve more balance and well-being by cultivating integration in the brain. How do you do that? Through supportive relationships, yes. And one of those relationships is how you relate to your own internal mental life. And uh, this kind of draws right into, I love how you talk about the, <clears throat> the acronym OWN, how you own an experience, which is observe, witness, and narrate. Yes. So that's very much away from a reactive, and it's about like, right, taking that breath. Um, I'd love you to expound on a little bit that and, and maybe connect that with the acronym you use called COAL, which I love yeah. as well. Yeah, beautiful. Um, you know, some people love acronyms and some people don't, so I appreciate your, you like them. Um, they're useful, you know, and I know that just means you have to remember what they stand for. But once you do, they can become very useful. So let's do own. Observe, O, witness, W, narrate, N. What this means is that, you know, we have this capacity that you can simply call mind sight, which is seeing the mind. So that, yes, everyone's got a mind. I mean, you have thoughts and feelings and subjective experience and a point of view. That's your mind. Fine. But not everyone has cultivated a rich capacity for seeing the mind, for mind sight, which includes insight, where you observe what's going on, you witness what's happening, and you even can tell a coherent story. You narrate it. That's observe, witness, narrate. And when you develop this own ability to have a mind sight capacity to know your own mind, have insight, you also are enriching the exact same circuits that allow you to have empathy, that is to sense another person's internal world, observe it, witness it, and even narrate it so that you can say, you know, here's what I'm hearing from you. Let me see if I got it right. You said you're really frustrated with what just happened and you're really sad that I forgot it was, you know, the six month anniversary of when we first met. And so I just want to reflect to you that, that I understand why you're sad and why you're irritated. And I'm really sorry that what I did was ignoring the six month anniversary because I didn't mean to ignore that or something like that. That would be someone who was using this observing, witnessing, narrating to literally observe what's going on. Okay, my friend is irritated with me. Witness it, meaning I am present for it. I bear witness to it. I take it in. I accept it for what it is. 
but then be able to tell the coherent story to make sense. We are storytelling beings. That's what human beings are. And in that storytelling ability, we want to make sense of the events that have happened. And so that's what observing, witnessing, narrating is all about. I also would love you to go into the acronym COAL, because that's just yeah. so lovely as well, and it's a part of this. Yeah. Well, COAL, you know, I, look, I have an acronym addiction, so it's a little funny. <laughs> but, but the COAL thing is so fun because it's it, it's what warms the heart of being present, you know? So what is it? C is curiosity. It's really saying, wow, you know, something's happening right now. I let me. I'm curious about what it's about. I'm really wanting to know more. I'm inquiring, you know, that's this curious stance. Open is the O of coal. And what open means is that, you know, I'm not putting up walls. I'm really here to receive what comes in without blocking it off. So I'm curious, I'm open. The A is accepting. Now, how's accepting different from open? Accepting means once I've been open to what happens, like, oh, my friend, I find out my friend is really irritated with me. I don't then shut off and say, okay, well, I've opened to it. Now I don't like it. That's dumb. You shouldn't be thinking that. I accept it. I accept that this is an experience that's happening right now inside of someone else, or this is an experience that's happening right now inside of me. Let's say I'm feeling sad or disappointed or envious or angry or you know, feeling rejected. Whatever might arise, I accept it because I'm in that radical kind of acceptance place. And then I bring a tenderness, a kindness, a positive regard. We can simply use the word love for so that's the L of coal. So being curious, open, accepting, and loving is actually a good way of describing what some people would call being present. Uh, it would be a good way of describing what many people would refer to as being mindful or mindfully aware. Um, and I just like to remember it because it's extremely specific. You have four components that are what it means to be present, to be mindfully aware. You're curious, you're open, accepting, and loving. And it allows you to let go of judgments. It allows you to realize that even if you have an emotion or thought or memory or something that you didn't expect or kind of wish you didn't have, if you push against that or even cling to it, like, oh, I, I'm going to only feel happy. I'm feeling happy right now, but I'm going to only feel happy. No more sadness. You know, you're not in that cold state and all sorts of chaos and rigidity arise when we're not in a coal frame of mind. And so, especially if you combine the own and the coal, like you're beautifully bringing up together, then you realize I can observe, witness, and narrate and make the story of something. But if I'm not doing it with a coal presence, you know, this curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love, then it can actually get quite contorted. And just telling a story of something can actually distance myself from others or even from myself. So coal is kind of at the at the um, foundation of, you know, how we show up for life. And it's how, you know, uh, uh, how we show up for our kids, if we're parents or for our friends. Um, and that's, you know, really the basis of the whole thing. I'm so glad you went through that with us, as I'm not as addicted to acronyms as you are, I bet. But uh, one that uh, has stuck with me for a while, and that actually helps me. And that's why I'm so glad you were repetitive about what those two mean, because they are things that you can say to yourself in the moment when something's off. And one of those things for me was the acronym, I forgot who initially came up with it, but fear, false evidence appearing real. 
Oh, nice. And, nice. you know, that one has been very helpful to me. Like, I'll have a moment, like any human being, of some irrational fear of whatever. And I, you know, I'll, I'll I, how do I know? Because I don't feel great in that moment. That's, we can all, we've got emotional indicators, right? All right. And so then... I've said that to myself, hold on, false evidence. Do I, is this really true? Is, am, am I really, <laughs> you know, I, I, I take a moment to be present with that and that acronym helps me. So exactly. in a lot of ways, I love that you did that. Now I want to dance back to rewiring the brain and being present and the wheel of awareness in the miraculous way in which it has helped people with chronic pain. And so yeah. I'd love you to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, this was a really, surprising thing for me you know the the wheel came from a simple uh, line of scientific reasoning i'm a scientist and i'm also a therapist and a physician you know um so uh i, I was trying to combine all these things together and it, it became really clear that integration seemed to be the fundamental mechanism of well-being in our minds in our relationships in our bodies in all sorts of ways so that was the first notion. The second was that people need to be conscious to change. So then the idea was, could you integrate the first concept, consciousness, the second concept, and put those together? So in my practice, I would have people um, do this simple integration of consciousness practice called the wheel of awareness, where you're taking con integration, which is differentiating and linking, and you're doing that to consciousness. So we put the knowing in the hub, of a, it's a table in my office, but no one wanted to call it the table of awareness, so we call it the wheel. <laughs> um, you know, and it's it's this center glass part, and I walk with my patients around it, and around the wooden rim, you know, we would say, okay, that's the knowns, and the glass centers the knowing, and this thing that holds up the table looks like a spoke, so we said it's a spoke, and we moved it around, and then they got better, and people with emotional pain, of course, found relief, but as I did it more and more. Not only my practice, but in with my my students who are therapists, and um, it, I started doing workshops. I'll give you an example. I did it in Australia in five different cities. And in Australia, when you're a lecturer, um, they they have a person called a minder who like sort of makes sure you get to your meals or from your hotel to the lecture hall or whatever. And so this minder, she was always by my side basically. And in every one of the five cities. And she witnessed this in everyone, you know, there were like 500 people in the workshop. Someone would come up to me either during the break or would actually take a microphone during the public time and say, you know, I had this chronic pain in my shoulder and my knee and my neck somewhere. And during the wheel practice, the pain went from being excruciating, which it's been, it's chronic pain, to disappearing or being just a very, very dull ache. And then they would email me after the workshop and it would stay away. And, you know, I was kind of I, at first I thought this is kind of weird, but it happened every time. And the minder then said to me, she said, no one's going to believe that every city people say the same thing. This chronic pain disappears with the wheel. So you could say, well, what's happening? Well, first of all, there's science to show that practices that involve the fundamentals of mind training that I call the three pillars, focused attention where you're focusing on one thing at a time, opening awareness, which you do from the hub when you open up just the expansiveness of whatever might arise, and then kind intention, which is a kind of kind, loving regard for self and other. 
you know, these three pillars of mind training have been shown to actually help reduce not only the subjective experience of pain, but also when you put a person in a brain scanner, the areas of the brain that register pain are actually hugely diminished. So I didn't know that at the time I was doing the wheel. I don't, I don't even know if the studies were out at that time. But it turns out that when you do the brain studies with the three pillar practices, sure enough, they reduce pain, which was then consilient, or that means a, a common finding across independent pursuits with the wheel. So I think what happens is this. You're registering pain, let's say, in your hip, and the part of your brain that is uh, – the brain representation of the hip region is now getting all these signals, signal, 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 signal. And it basically is intensifying not only the activation of a signal, like something's wrong, something's wrong, there's pain, there's pain, there's pain, but you're focusing attention on that and your awareness to it, it becomes like a loop that is what can, in some cases, create this intensification of pain and especially if there's a mindset i shouldn't have this i shouldn't have it it says oh my god i have it i have it. it's terrible terrible with the wheel practice in metaphoric terms here's what i think happens instead of being lost on the rim and the point of the rim that represents the body and in particular the hip and the pain of the hip you now are expanding where the focus of attention of that spoke goes so you're liberating yourself from it being only on the hip region and you're just systematically moving that spoke around. And even in the course of a 25 minute practice, I mean, this is what we've seen. You're basically pulling attention away from this hip and moving it to other parts of the body, moving it to other things like emotions and memories. And then you're even dropping into the hub itself, this expansiveness where all these possibilities rest. And by the end of it, you've basically freed up this excessive focus on the hip. And you've, uh, we, we've done this with other things, not just physical pain, but emotional pain or all sorts of issues that people feel this freedom from habits they've had. And if you think about chronic pain, for, in some cases, as just an habitual focus on a part of the body, you're then basically freeing that habit up so that the expansiveness enters this 100-gallon condition instead of the small espresso cup condition. And it happens pretty rapidly. And, you know, it doesn't happen with everyone. You know, it's not, not a cure-all for every kind of pain. But for a number of people, it's been amazing to offer this kind of relief. And uh, the, some of these emails we get are just – they just bring tears to your eyes that something as accessible as a 25-minute practice, especially when it's done regularly – can give so much liberation to a person and create such a sense of joy and freedom. Uh, it's quite amazing. 25 minutes. And um, I want to talk about something kind of random, but within your ar arena, which is, okay, so this is going to sound, you know, probably it's going to sound harsh to the audience, but hopefully everyone will know where I'm going with this, which is I've lived long enough to have witnessed and seen lots of different people, female and male, go through therapy, you know? And I've seen, wow, that therapist and that situation seems really amazing. Like, wow, that did the job. <clears throat> Not that everybody gets better. But then I also see this other side. And sometimes it seems that people 
in a victim state, go to therapy, and then it's like self-aggrandizing victimy there. They leave and not doing any of the work. It's like going to purge and be felt sorry for or have someone go, well, yeah, you know, you grew up this way, therefore that's why you have this. And then they leave going, yep, see, was raised wrong. And I've seen that too. I have a couple of questions around this. One is, you know, your practice is great because it's owning it and taking personal responsibility and doing actual work, even outside of therapy or not, or just, you know, because it's amazing. Um, Then there's this other part of how do we find and look for if we need to go to therapy? Now, of course, there's specific therapy like, you know, marriage and family counseling, or there might be, you know, childhood trauma and some areas where there might be specialists. But what are generally should we be looking for if we're forward movement and we we want to change? What kind of therapy should we seek out? How do we look for it? How do we Google it? Wow, (laughs) that is such an important and challenging question. And I guess I would just begin by saying, um, you know, in this book, Mindsight, I tried to give examples of the the many ways people come to therapy and and talk about their therapy sessions and the kind of work needed to make sure it isn't just doing what you're saying on the negative side, where it just says, oh, yeah, this is why I am. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, You know, so so for me. I guess the way I would start with the question is um, if there's chaos or rigidity in your life, uh, amazingly, it kind of comes down to something as basic and accessible as that. Almost every form of human suffering is chaos, rigidity, or both. And what those uh, experiences can usually mean in our life is that there's some kind of integration that's blocked, something in the way we're fitting in uh, to a family or not, or the way it's working in a relationship with one-on-one or, you know, even with our own inner life with our memories and not making sense of how our past has influenced our present or how we are being dehumanized in society and, and, and being disenfranchised because of our gender or ethnicity or religion or race. So there's lots of reasons from the societal to the self that we can have suffering in our lives. So, so if there's chaos or rigidity, let's start there. Then it suggests that if that is prolonged in your life, not just for a few moments, because we're all kind of moving along this river of life and we can be on the bank of chaos, the bank of rigidity for a little bit in a given day, you know, but it, it, it shouldn't last for more than a few minutes or certainly uh, hours, you know, but when people have hours to days to weeks to months of this chaos and rigidity, then something is not quite right. And you can experience that as depression, anxiety, confusion, deflation, emptiness, all sorts of things you might experience. So that's the first thing to say is that if that's what you're going through, then getting some help might be really useful. Now, we've had people read the Mindsight book or even the Aware book and find relief in doing that. And they find some deep uh, ways for personal transformation, even in just reading the book, which I got to say surprises me as a therapist, because, you know, I, before I ever wrote books, I thought, well, you know, people really need to go to a therapist. Well, they actually don't always need to go to a therapist. Just read books by one. Yeah. Just. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was surprised when I would get all these letters from people who just found the books themselves therapeutic. So, Okay, so that was really deeply rewarding. But sometimes you actually need a human being, especially if there's been, um, you know, things in your own past 
that were really quite challenging. Now, not everyone has had difficult experiences in their childhood by any means. And, and there are lots of ways we suffer and our childhoods were perfectly fine. It's true. So, but in cases where, which are probably about, oh, I don't know, a third to a half of, of us, you know, human beings, the experiences in our childhood were not optimal. That's a lot of people. So just in the United States alone, you know, that's about 150 million people. Wow. Yeah. So, so thanks, parents. Jerks. Yeah. yeah. So and I'm just saying I'm using <laughs> no. the word suboptimal. I didn't say traumatizing. I just said suboptimal. So the pathway I would say in terms of finding a therapist is because we've all once been children. Every therapist, in my view, not just child psychiatrist or child psychologist, or child therapist, but every therapist should be deeply informed about development and about how, you know, what we've come through early in life, through adolescence and into adulthood, continues to shape lifespan development. So I would seek out someone who has a developmental orientation. And what I urge people to consider is that, you know, while you may go to psychotherapy once a week or twice a week, and that can be a beautiful thing, that the therapist should also realize that this thing called neuroplasticity, that is how the brain is going to be changing in the course of therapy, will be greatly amplified if there are daily mind training practices offered to the client, to the patient. Too many therapists, in my opinion, in my experience, just think, okay, they're going to come once a week and that's it. And okay, fine, you're developing a relationship, but you should also be giving practices. Now, aware would be just one example of many kinds of practices you can do, which in this case, the wheel of awareness has three pillars that are research proven to bring well-being into your life in all sorts of ways we can name, but they're really powerful ways for both your brain to become more integrated and for your um, body to become healthier, even slowing the aging process. So, you know, people should be doing three pillar practice and you get it all three of them, which are what, what's been studied are the three different pillars independently. They happen, fortunately, to be all within the one practice called the wheel of awareness. So you can start doing that. Then in terms of therapy itself, you know, I've seen many therapies go really, really well when the therapist is really present for the person they're working with, goes with them on a journey both into the past to make sense of the past and free themselves up in the present so they can live the kind of future that they want to live and being with them there in the moment to take feedback and to say, well, hey, we tried this, it didn't work, let's realign what we're doing and try this other thing. So those two things, the presence of the therapist and them being empathic and the openness of the therapist to seeking feedback and getting it and then responding in a non-defensive way, that's what John Norcross, who studies all forms of therapy, has found as the common ground of effective therapy has those what are called non-specific features. So whatever the strategy, because there are so many schools of therapy, you know, depending on what you have, you may benefit from this one or that one. But these two characteristics, the presence and empathy of your therapist and their interest and openness to seeking and responding to the feedback, those are the key features. Now, once you do that, you say, well, what am I doing in therapy? Well, 
what you're doing is you're integrating your life. You're integrating your relationships. You're integrating your brain. And and there are steps to doing that. And in, in the work I do, we work on nine domains of integration. And so with the students that have been trained by me, they know how to work with these domains. And it doesn't mean you have to work in this particular way, but I find myself that to have a coherent framework, this interpersonal neurobiology we do, um, helps you see how you can have chaos or rigidity coming from any blockage to one or all of the nine domains. And doing the domain of, in, of consciousness, the first domain is how we usually begin, and then you go through the other eight domains. And so, you know, there are there's a program called um, a, a nonprofit organization called uh, the Global Association for Interpersonal Neurobiology Studies, and it's mindgains.org. And there are therapists all around the planet, you know, trained in in their own form of therapy, but then using interpersonal neurobiology with these nine domains as a foundation. And it's a beautiful thing to see science come together with clinical practice to help people, um, you know, really do some deep work. Can you give us that website one more time? I wasn't clear on what it was. Yeah. So it's the word mind, M-I-N-D, and then GAINS is the abbreviation for uh, the organization, but it's G-A-I-N-S dot org. And it's a nonprofit and it has a listing of people who've trained in interpersonal neurobiology or interested in it. Um, you can always go to our website too, and we have referrals um, as well, drdansiegel.com. You can do the Wheel of Awareness from there. Um, and the idea is this just, you know, we're not a form of therapy. What we do is we inform therapy. So you'll find many lettered forms of therapy that are absolutely wonderful, like, um, you know, just to name three right off the bat. I mean, there's somatic experiencing, there's um, sensory motor therapy, those are two body-based ones. There's EMDR, there's um, IFS, uh, EMDR is a process that allows you to go deeply into integrating things in certain ways. IFS is internal family systems work. I could go on to a bunch of letters, ACT is another one, ACT. Um, there are many, many programs that have research behind them that are really fantastic and you know we're all different and you you know the key thing is the therapist but you'll find therapists trained in these different uh, modalities and you know um I, i'm sure i've left many lettered forms out and people will be upset about it but uh, that's why it's always a risk to name any but i'm just naming a few that have research behind them and that is really beautiful and you know, our our stance in interpersonal neurobiology, and now we have over 70 textbooks that I've overseen the publication of to support this stuff we're talking about. Um, you know, we are not a form of therapy, but many therapists use interpersonal neurobiology as a grounding, fundamental, basic science for all therapies. So that's why we say we're not a form of therapy, we inform therapy. And the work is a beautiful thing because you deserve to give yourself the gift of integrating your life so that um, you can be free from whatever prisons of the past remain there, even outside of your awareness, and then really try to contribute to the world in a way that suits who you are, You know, whether it's in small ways, little gardens around where you live, or saying hello to neighbors to larger ways where you know, people work in schools teaching or in 
organizations running departments or governments or, you know, working to try to help climate change issues. There's so many ways we can find meaning and purpose in life, which is often about, you know, finding a way to realize we're much bigger than these bodies we're born into and living a, live, living a meaningful life is often about giving to the world uh, beyond just your body. So that's really becoming a part of a whole larger self. I use the word we, M-W-E, mm -hmm. to remind ourselves, you know, that we have a me that lives in the body and a we that is our interconnection with other people on the planet. And this we identity, I feel, and it's how we end the wheel of awareness practice, it's our hope for the future. And the relief people feel when they embrace deep in their in their experience that we can be a we not just a me and not just get rid of the me and become a we but actually be both it's an integrated identity i i really feel that in the journey i've been on as a scientist and as a clinician it's where we as a humanity need to really consider going a collective we movement getting all different languages all different ways of being in the world, schools, organizations, governments, to realize we together can realize our deep interconnection with earth, with nature, with other people, uh, with our own inner life. And all these things would be a way to lead a more integrated, kinder, more compassionate way of being. That's so excellent. Um, in, in wrapping up, I would love to hear um, over your highly decorated and very long career, so many patients and stories of patients from fellow colleagues, I'm sure, that you've had and known. I'd love to hear one or two or whatever you got that stands out to you as someone who most of the world would go, oh, that's that's hopeless. Forget it. You know what I mean? And uh, what happened to their life and or whether it's that, you know, they used therapy and through that um, changed, but just a, a 180, you know, that stands out. Uh, you've, you've had, you've had so many, I'm sure. Um, but you know, it, it's never too late. Right. And I want yeah. people to have hope. And I, I know there's some, there's probably something out there that I don't know. What do you, what do you have in that? Or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, there's so many, you know, I just, I feel like the people I have the privilege to work with have really changed me. So as you asked me that question, I, I um, am filled with, you know, so many people. <laughs> so I'll just pick two because of time constraints. Um, you know, one, you know, is a person who, when her story um, of the huge trauma that she wasn't even aware of at first, uh, but then it came out, became clear, you would imagine that it would be impossible uh, for her to transform and is it too traumatic for us to hear what that trauma was? Yes, okay. that's for sure. Uh, but, but just to put it simply, you know, that if you can imagine your attachment figures uh, doing the most sadistic, egregious, bizarre kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, that's something just to imagine. Um, and, and then to find the way of connecting as a therapist with an inner source inside of her to allow her to be curious, open, accepting, and loving of the different ways she had to adapt to this. And then really to go into the most vulnerable places of need and um, uncertainty and 
in a way, dependency at first that could then grow into a more interdependency in our relationship with each other and then grow into this incredibly strong human being filled with wisdom and kindness and care to her own children and now out in the world what she's doing. You know, she can't believe it. Other people couldn't believe it. And, um, you know, there are changes like that where people make massive, massive shifts. I mean, you they're they're in different uh, ways. You can you can learn about them in the world or read about them in books or whatever. Um, the second one in a book is that I'll bring up is is this guy called Stuart. And he was 90 when he came for therapy. And I'm <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but that's just like, yeah. okay, wow, this guy, I mean, I mean it's never therapy. too late. <laughs> and, you know, he was a known, you know, public figure in terms of, uh, he was a lawyer and people knew how tough this guy was. And his son had been in one of my workshops, you know, as a therapist and brought his dad in saying he was depressed and could I do something for his depression? And, you know, so, um, the son thought it was pretty hopeless, but one, one, effort to try to get his reclusive, depressed dad into help. So anyway, so I did this thing called the adult attachment interview, which I do with all my patients pretty much, you know, about reviewing their past and seeing what shadows of the past have been darkening their present. And he was completely not into this. You know, he was a, a trial attorney, you know, who put me at trial, you know, in the beginning of therapy. <laughs> and it was, you know, um, I can just feel him right now. Uh, you know, he's passed since is a long time ago, but, um, you know, he, there, there came this moment when I said to him, you know, something like it was, uh, someone had, uh, uh, died. Actually it was, um, a person in his law firm died and he didn't feel anything. I said, well, you know, I, I'd asked him, you know, how do you feel? And he goes, I don't feel anything. I said, you didn't feel anything. And you worked with this guy for like 40 years or, and he goes, yeah, he goes, I know that that doesn't make sense, but I don't feel anything about it. And then he pauses. Now here's the moment of opening when he says, I know that's probably wrong, which is a very kind of judgmental thing to say, but it's understandable that he doesn't feel anything for somebody he's known for 40 years. And then he says to me, you know, do you think there'd be a way I could ever feel something in my life? Because all my life when people say, you know, how do you feel? I have no idea what they mean. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so I look at him and, you know, you have to be very tender at this moment when there's kind of a, if you will, just to separate the head from the heart, when the heart is speaking and saying, you know, I, I don't feel anything down here. And the head goes, yeah, that's kind of wrong. There's this moment of a kind of irony, right? That the head is actually making a judgment saying, I think, I think we've been too dominant in this person's life. <laughs> so you want to be really tender. You don't want to blow it away and say, yeah, yeah, I could change you. I could change you. you. Go, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I said, I don't know. Why would you want to change? You're 90. And he goes, oh, don't you think you could help me? You know, so now here's a guy who never wanted to be in therapy. who's now like asking, don't you think you do something? I go, I don't know. Well, maybe I maybe I'm, I don't know. You know, so we did the adult attachment interview. We uncovered a very painful disconnect, you know, and if you ever see Ed Tronic's still face experiment, you know, 7.3 million people have watched this colleague of mine's little video, just watch it, uh, the still face, you know, basically poor Stuart had been a child raised by permanent still face parents that had no emotional connection with him. 
And, and if you look at the baby's response in that video, which is basically where a baby's interacting with their mom and everything's going fine. And then the, the researchers tell the, the uh, mom or the dad, you know, the parent to stop interacting with the kid. And the kid makes all these bids, bids, bids for connection, then ultimately gets agitated and then just shuts down. Well, that shutdown was Stuart's legacy, right? And, and you not only have the experience of, you know, emptiness from a lack of connection, but now you've got this, um, this strategy of defense, which is to be living only in your head, not your heart. So, you know, knowing this, cause I'm an attachment researcher and I'm a therapist, you know, uh, uh, I could see through Stuart's 90 year old eyes, a little baby whose heart was waiting to connect and whose heart was broken by the incredible, not getting it, right? Not getting it, you know, and you just want to cry with it there, but you don't, you know, you can't be there quite yet, but you want to be open to Stuart's younger aspect of himself that the research shows never dies, that it, it kind of goes into hibernation. So now the, the art of therapy in this case for, with Stuart was to gently let him see a little bit of water that would be there, not too much that would flood him, but just enough so this hibernating, encased, kind of protected heart could feel a little connection. And you'll see in the book Mindsight, the case of Stuart, um, I don't remember which chapter, chapter six or something like that, you know, you'll see that even at 90, this tender heart of a young child could be attuned to, and I could do, here's the final acronym, part, you know, I could be present for Stuart P. I could attune, meaning I could focus on the internal life of Stuart that was so hidden away, resonate. I could feel Stuart inside me, you know, and he could then feel himself that he was in me. And so he could have this experience of feeling felt, that's R, resonating. And T is trust, that this tender heart of Stuart for all these decades, waiting, 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 could finally have the situation in which it was safe enough for him to come out. And the journey is described in the book, but it's, you know, in terms of an unchangeable situation, his wife, you know, called me like six months into the therapy. And she said, Dr. Dan, you know, I got to ask you a question. I said, what is it? She goes, did you give Stuart a brain transplant? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She goes, he's like a different person. He's so present emotionally, he's so empathic. And it was like um, this most rewarding thing uh, as, a, as a person on the planet, just to join with someone else. Uh, and he was someone where no one, even his son, uh, short of thinking I would give his father medications, which he didn't need. He wasn't depressed. He was just with something called a dismissing attachment stance. I think no one would have believed that at 90, especially an irascible guy like Stuart, that he could change so much. And, um, you know, the final part of his therapy was uh, when he had become this present empathic guy, he said, I really want to learn to just have joy in my life. And that's what he succeeded in doing. And uh, I got a card from him right before he passed um, I still have it right here uh, that said, you know, Dan, you, you just need to understand how happy and joyful I am now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, oh. you know, people, 
you know, this is the thing about we started with, you know, in our conversation today, you know, your your brain, just stay with the brain, is always open to change through experiences that your mind creates by allowing your relationships to open up to love, you know. And uh, it's just such an honor to talk to you about all this stuff because I think, especially when you come to the we thing, you know, we as a human family really need to consider new ways of bringing that love into the world. And awareness is the channel to do that. And so I hope this conversation will inspire people to, to, uh, to, to join us in the journey. That was so wonderful. What a great story to end on. And, you know, one of my thoughts while you were saying it is that I thought, oh, well, there could be a devil's advocate where someone would be like, actually, life seems pretty good if you're not feeling much because then you're not upset. And then you're, you exactly. know. But, but at the same time, too, it's not that his statement of, I know that's wrong. It's something was missing. He knows something was missing. Yeah. And there's a reason for that because we're meant to have feelings. And so I love that finally at his end of life, uh, that, that flower, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. We will put all of, uh, the ways to connect with you in our show notes. And again, Dr. Dan Siegel, S I E G E L.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, your new book, uh, your latest New York Times bestseller, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence, is available on Amazon and everywhere else. And we'll put that in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us and enlightening us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message, I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS, and this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress. Whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight or flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout, but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function, maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day. This stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage. So I like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.